With Hashem's assistance, we are learning Baba Metziyad of Chavav, page 26. We begin on the bottom of Chavhei, on base, page 25b. We begin at the Mishnah. Matzabagal ubekoysel yashon. Let's say we find a lost object in a pile of stones. And Rashi says this pile of stones is the result of a wall falling that was made out of stones. Or if you find it in an old wall, an ancient wall, Re'elu Shalot is permitted to keep it. Matzabekoysel chadash. Let's say you find a lost object in a hole, in a wall, in a brand new wall. So, and if we can imagine it, so we have a hole in the wall and it's going from, from the outside, from where the person is standing in the public domain, and the hole goes straight through, clear through to the inside of the house. So the, the mission says like this, if it's towards the outside, if it's towards where the person is standing, so then, shaloi. So then the person who has found it is allowed to keep it. And Rashi explains that the Gemara is going to say that the case is talking about that the object that was found is full of overgrowth. It's full of like moss or whatever it is. And it's clear that it's been there for a significant amount of time and the owners have given up hope on it. Therefore, he can keep it. But if it was placed closer into the inside towards where the house is, so then it belongs to the homeowner, to the person who owns that house. If let's say that house was rented to someone else, even if you found a lost object inside the house itself, it's permitted to be kept by whoever has found it. And Rashi explains, he points out that the case is talking about where it's not clear who the owner is, and we can assume, we have reason to believe that the original owners have given up hope. We begin the Gemara. Tana. We learned in a brisa, The reason that it's permitted to keep an object that was found in a pile of stones or in an ancient wall is because the person who has found it can claim to whoever, let's say, owns that pile or owns that wall that this object originally had been placed there by the people who lived in the land of Israel before the Jews came in by the Amorim. So the Gemara says, hold on a second. What, only the Amorim, the Amorites, they were the only people who would hide things in their walls. Jews don't do that. The Gemara says, Lloyd Sricha, no, we need it for the following. The case is talking about where it's very overgrown. It's clear that it's been there for a very long amount of time. And a Jew would not have left it there that long. So therefore, clearly it came from the people who had been there before the Amorites. The Gemara continues, If we're talking about a brand new wall, so we said if the hole is going from one side of the wall to the other, if you found it towards the outside, so it's permitted to keep it by the person who's found it on the outside, but if it was found on the inside, so you have to assume that it belongs to the house owner. Amar Ravashi, Ravashi says, If the item that was found was a knife, so you go by the direction that the handle is facing, meaning, if the handle is facing outwards, so clearly it was placed there by somebody who's outside. If the handle is facing inwards, so clearly it was placed by somebody who was inside, and therefore belongs to the person who lives inside the house. And we're talking about a purse or a money bag, so it goes by where the strings are facing, the strings that close the top of the money bag, so ordinarily a person, when he places down a money bag, he faces the strings towards him. So if it was placed in such a way that the strings are facing outwards, you know it was placed by someone outside. If it was placed in such a way that it was facing inwards, so you know it was placed there by somebody inside. So Gemara says, hold on a second. But what about the mission? The mission says, that it depends on the location of the item, not on which way the thing is facing. Why don't we just say, let's see if the handle is facing inwards or outwards. Or whether the strings are facing inwards or outwards. So the Mishnah doesn't sound like what Ravashi said. The Gemara answers, We can just as well say that the Mishnah is not talking about a case of a knife or a money bag. It's talking about a case of a ball of wool or a piece of metal that don't have a distinct direction that it should be facing. And therefore, 
it depends which place it's located. If it's located closer to outside, it belongs to the person who's found it. If it's located closer to inside, it belongs to the homeowner. Tana, we have a brisa. And my man, let's say this hole was completely filled by the object that was found, Chalkin. So then they actually split the object, because since it's neither closer to this side nor the other side, therefore they split it. The more says, Pshita, that's obvious. The more answers, like, no, we do need it. That the wall is slightly tilted. Because you would have thought, that it certainly actually started off on the side that's higher, and it fell down into the middle, and therefore they shouldn't split it. You should just give it to the side which is higher. This is going to teach you that we don't, in fact, assume it, but we actually assume that it was placed there intentionally, and since it's in a place where it's not clear who placed it there, the person on the outside, the person on the inside, therefore they split it. We said in the Mishnah, if a house had been rented to other people, meaning it wasn't the Balhabayis, the actual owner of the house wasn't living there, even if an object was found inside of the house, if it doesn't belong to the person who lives there, then it belongs to the person, and now belongs to the person who has found it. Why don't we assume that it actually belongs to the previous tenant, the last person who had rented this house? Didn't we learn in the Mishnah as follows? And before we begin the Mishnah, so we need a little bit of an introduction as to what's going on. So in the times of the Temple, so the Jews, they would take off Meister Shani, a special tithe, which we still do take off today, but we don't do what they did then. What they used to do then was that they would take the tithe and they would spend the money specifically in Jerusalem. And Rashi tells us that this second tithe was generally used to buy animals. So now, let's say a person finds money. If the money is found, and the money is right next to the stand where somebody sells animals, and it's clear that this money was most likely going to be used to buy an animal for a sacrifice, so we have to assume that Generally speaking, the money that you're going to find there is going to have holiness. It's going to be Meister Shani, the second tithe, and you can only use the money in Jerusalem. Bahar Habayis, let's say the money is found on the Temple Mount itself, Chulin. So Rashi explains that over here it's going to be considered that it's Chulin. We don't assume it has any holiness, and the reason is because even if we're talking about a time when it's the Regal, the Regal is the festival when Jews used to converge on Jerusalem, everyone would come there, and most of the time people would have their Meister Shani, all their tithe money, their second tithe money that they needed to spend in Jerusalem. So generally speaking, the money in Jerusalem was mostly Meiser Shani. It was mostly the second tithe and had a holiness. However, if the money was found on the Harabites, on the Temple Mount itself, so Rashi tells us that we actually assume that the money has been there since before the festival. And when it's not the festival, so generally speaking, most of the money that's around is not Meiser Shani. It's not second tithes. The only time that we assume that it's considered a second tithe, that it has holiness, is only if you found it right next to the sand that sells the sacrifices. Only there's the money likely to be the Meiser Shani, the second tithe. But on the Harabites, on the Temple Mount itself, whether it's the festival time, whether it's not the festival time, you have every right to assume that the money came there even before the festival. And before the festival, like we said, most of the money that's found on the Harabais, on the Temple Mount, does not have a holiness. Now, in the rest of Jerusalem, besides for these two places, besides for the Temple Mount and these stands where they sold animals, so during the rest of the year, Chulin, you can assume that indeed the money does not have any holiness, it's not the second tithe. But if we're talking about at the time of the festival, Hakol Meiser. So then everything, you have to assume indeed it has a holiness. So Rabbi Bar Zeir says as follows, My time, what's the reason? That as opposed to the Harabais, the Temple Mount, so the other places in Jerusalem, for example, the markets, so those are cleared out every single day. They're swept through every single day. So therefore, if you find something today, you find some money, it's definitely not from yesterday. It's definitely not from before the festival. And if you find something right after the festival, let's say, you don't have to assume that the money's been there since the festival. Whatever is there now is going to represent whatever most of the money in Jerusalem currently is. However, on the Harabais, on the Temple Mount itself, since they didn't go in there with shoes, so the floors weren't so dirty, and therefore they weren't swept every single day. So if you found some money there, it would be possible 
possible or likely that it came from before the regal, from before the festival. So therefore you could assume that indeed it didn't have any holiness. Now what do we see from here? Alma, we can deduce, Amrinan Kamoi Kamoi Azlu. What we say is that if it's a place that's ordinarily swept, so we assume that the original things that were around, they're gone. Vahani Achrininu. And whatever we find now has been left here by the most recent people who have been here. Hachanami, so in our case as well, where you find an object inside of somebody's house that is usually, that usually has a tenant there. So, Kama Kama Azlu, we should say the same thing. That there's no reason to believe that the object that was found now belonged to anyone from a previous tenant, like very previous, but just the last one, Bahani the Basru, and clearly it belongs to the last tenant who was here. Omer Ishlakish, so Ishlakish says, Mishum Bar Kapara, in the name of Bar Kapara, Kigon Shasai Pundak Lishlesh Israel. The case is talking about where there are three Jews there who are living in this place, and it's an inn, it's an overnight inn that people use for lodgings. So now, what happens? So one of the three guys loses his object, so he knows that there are more people, he's outnumbered by the other two people that are there, so he assumes that one of them took it, and he gives up hope on it, and therefore it's permitted for the person who's found it to keep it. So the Gemara says Shmamina. So we should be able to deduce from this halachah to Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar that the law is going to be like Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar, who says that it's permitted to keep something because we go after the rove, after the many. Afilu Yisrael. Even if we're talking about a place which is inhabited by Jews, even if most of the people there are Jews, still a person will give up because there are people who steal. Says, no, that can't be the understanding. We can say that it's an inn which is used by three non-Jews. And therefore, since most of the people there are non-Jews, so therefore it's permitted to keep it. Rav Nachman Amar Rabbi Baravua. So Rav Nachman says a different understanding in the name of Rabbi Baravua. Afilu Yisrael. We can say that it indeed was rented these lodgings to three Jews. And by the way, Rashi explains and points out that when we talk about that they were the last ones who were there. Rashi says that they were still there at this time. Otherwise, if no one's there, so then the Bal Habayis, the person who owns this place, is going to immediately take possession. So the person who has found it will not be able to keep it. In any event, Rav Nachman is saying in the name of Rabbi Baravua that even if we're talking about three Jews, nevertheless, despite the fact that it could be, Rabbi Shimon Elazar says, ordinarily you can't keep it, but in this, this case you can. Why? My time, what's the reason? The guy who dropped it, Miyayash, he's going to give up hope. Why? Meymar Amr is going to say to himself like this, Michti, let me think about this. There was no one else with me except for these two guys. I said to them a number of times that they should return it to me, and they did not return it to me. What, they're going to return it to me now? If they planned to return it, they would have returned it already. Obviously, from the fact that they haven't returned it, they intend to steal it. And therefore, he gives up hope. And specifically, in this case, this precise circumstance, where since they're living together, there's only a few people, so he sees that he's not going to get his thing back and he gives up. And this statement that Rav Nachman just made actually goes according to his own reasoning, the Amar Rav Nachman, because Rav Nachman says elsewhere, let's say you see a coin. We turn it off, page 26b. So let's say you see a coin fall from two people, you're not sure from whom it fell. In such a case, there's an obligation to try to return it. My time, what's the reason? The guy who actually dropped it, he's not going to give up hope from it. So you can't take it. Why doesn't he give up hope? Because he says to himself, let's think about this. The only person who was with me that it could have fallen from was this other guy, right? I know, it's mine. And if he tries to take my coin, I'm going to take him to court. And I'll tell him, you're the one who took my coin. And Rashi says, and he can force him to swear. So therefore, since he knows that he can force the guy to swear and give him back his thing, so he doesn't give up hope on it. And therefore, the person who finds it has to give it back. But if there were three people that were standing there and the coin fell, there's not going to be an obligation to return it. My time, what's the reason? The one that dropped it, he's for sure going to give up hope. Because why? Because he says to himself, let's think about this. 
There are two people that were there with me. If I'm going to take this one to court and accuse him and say that he took my coin, he's going to say, I didn't take it. If I take the other guy, he's also going to say, I didn't take it. And he's not going to be able to force anyone to swear. You can only force somebody to swear if you know for sure that he was the one who took your thing. And therefore, he feels like he's not going to get his thing back. And therefore, he gives up hope on it. And therefore, the person who's found it is permitted for him to keep it. So this concept of Rav Nachman is the same idea over here as it is in regards to the case where there were three people that were living in this pundak in this small overnight inn. Amar Rav, Rav says, This is what we said, that if we're talking about three people who have dropped a coin, it's not clear from whom it fell, that there's no obligation to return it. That was only said in a case where theoretically, if let's say we return the coin, so, and they would split it up, so each one would end up with less than a pruta, less than a, the minimum amount of money, which is like a penny, right? So if they would each end up with less than that, so therefore you can assume that they weren't partners in that money. But if you would give them back the money, so they would each end up with more than a pruta, more than a penny, so then there would be an obligation to return it. My time was the reason, because there's a possibility that they were all partners in the money, and therefore they haven't given up hope. Since there's that possibility, so you can't keep it for yourself, you have to try to return it. Ikud the Amri, there's a different version of the statement of Ravah, Ravah, that Ravah said as follows, If we're talking about three people, even though the money that was found was only two prutos, and thus each one will end up with two-thirds of a pruto, less than a pruto, less than this minimum amount of money, there still is an obligation to return it. My time, what's the reason? Because we could say that they're actually partners. And one of these three guys who was a partner, he forgave his portion to the other people, and therefore each one will end up with a pruto, will end up with this minimum amount of money so therefore they would not have given up hope and therefore it's not permitted for you to take it you have to try to announce it and return it to them and Rav says another statement let's say you see somebody drop a coin let's say you picked it up before he had a chance to check his pockets so he has not yet given up hope on it and the intention was in order to steal it so you've transgressed all the possible transgressions that are possible in this case first one is you've stolen and Rashi says that stealing is only possible at the time you actually pick it up as we'll see in a later case that there is another case where you've done it but you haven't stolen it so here you've stolen You've also transgressed the positive commandment to return a lost object. You've also transgressed the prohibition of not turning away. Meaning, when the Torah says that we're supposed to return something, so it says a positive commandment and a negative commandment. The first is, you need to return it. The second is, you shouldn't turn away from it. Meaning, you shouldn't just pass it by. So here, you've transgressed all three of these different things. And even if you return it after the person has completely given up hope, so then it's considered that you've given him a gift because he no longer owns it. You haven't returned his lost object because he already gave up hope on it. That's what you've given to him. And you've transgressed your transgressions and there's nothing you can do about it unless you do tshuva and you repent. Let's say you picked it up before the guy gave up hope. And the original intention was to return it. After that guy gives up hope, you change your mind, you figure, you know, I'm going to just take it. He gave up hope already. So then you have transgressed the prohibition of Hashiv Deshivim, which means you shall actively return it, right? Because you haven't stolen it, because stealing is only at the beginning when you pick it up. And you also haven't passed by it because you intended to return it. 
Let's say you did the opposite. You waited until the guy went and gave up hope. Then you picked it up. The only thing that you have transgressed is the prohibition from passing by an object. Why? Because you saw him drop it, and you waited. You didn't pick it up right away at a time when you could have returned it, but rather you waited until he gave up hope, and now you don't have to return it. So now, you haven't transgressed stealing, because it doesn't belong to him, you've taken it afterwards. You haven't transgressed hashe deshivim, which means that you should return something which belongs to him, because it doesn't belong to him. But you have transgressed, that you shouldn't turn away from a lost object, because if you would have picked it up as soon as you saw it, you would have been able to return it, and now you've lost that opportunity. Amar Rav, Rav says, Let's say somebody sees a, another person drop a coin, and it's in an area where there's a lot of sand. And then the person who had seen this, so he picks it up, and he takes it. So there's no obligation for him to return it to the person who fell from my time. Huh? What's the reason? The guy who dropped it, he gives up hope on it. Even if he sees that the person who's coming along to look for it has brought a sifter and is sifting through the sand, so the guy who dropped it says to himself, Just like I dropped a coin in the sand, someone else could have just as easily have dropped a coin and it could be someone else's. And that's what was found. And therefore, the person who has lost the money, he's given up hope. We begin the next Mishnah. Let's say you find a lost object or some lost money in a store. And Rashi says we're talking about a case where there's no sign on it. It's permitted for the person who's found them to keep it. Meaning, because since this store is a place where lots of people enter and exit, so the original owner, he's given up hope on the thing because he doesn't think he's going to get it back. Let's say the object or the money was found between the storekeeper and his cash register. So the only reason that it would be in that location is because it actually belonged to the storekeeper himself. If let's say we're talking about a money changer, so if it's on the table, we have no reason to believe that it belongs to the shulchani, the money changer himself, because if it was, then it would be between him and the table, not on the table. So from the fact that it's on the table, clearly it was left there by somebody who was one of his customers. So it's therefore it's permitted to keep. But if it's between the chair and the money changer himself, so since it's in his area, so we have every reason to believe that it belongs to him. If somebody buys fruits from his friend, like or if his friend sent him fruits, and he finds amongst the fruit there's money, it's permitted for him to keep it. But if it was in a bundle, if it was inside of a money pouch, so then you have to take it and you have to announce it. The Gemara is going to explain exactly what this case is. We begin the Gemara. says, Even if it's placed on top of the table, it's permitted for him to keep. We learned in the Mishnah. If it's in front of the Shulchani, of the money changer, it's permitted for whoever is found it to keep it. So the Gemara understands here that it's not talking about on the table itself, but it's talking about in front of the table. The indication here is, if it will be found on the table itself, so then it will belong to the money changer himself. But what does it say after that? When does it belong to the Shulchani? When does it belong to the money changer? Only if it's found between the chair and the money changer himself. Then it belongs to him. The indication is, if it will be found on the table itself, so then it will belong to the person who's found it. So rather from the mission itself, you cannot prove anything. How does Rabbi Lazar know that in fact if it's found on the table, it's permitted for the person who's found it to keep it? Amarava, Rav says, say that he had a problem with the Mishnah. Why did we say the case that where it belongs to the Shulchan, the money changer, it's talking about a case where it's between the chair and the money changer. Let it say that if it was found on the table, it belonged 
belongs to the person who owns the store. Why doesn't it say a case where it was found in the money changer's store, that it says in the first case that if it was found in the store, that it belongs to him. So why didn't it say either of these two ways? It must be, even if it's sitting on top of the table, so the, what are the words of the mission? It says, if it's found in front of the shulchan, in front of the money changer. So that would imply that it even includes the table itself. So that's how everybody else sees it in the Mishnah. We said that if you're buying fruits from your friend and some money is found amongst the fruits, so it's permitted to keep it, but if the money is in a bag, so then you have to announce it. So the Gemara explains like this. In the name of this is how we said that you don't have to return it. It's only talking about if you had bought it from a merchant, because the merchant, the retailer, bought it from many different wholesalers. So who knows where this actually came from? You can't possibly find out whose money it was. But if it was bought from a homeowner, meaning the wholesaler himself, then you would have an obligation to assume that this belongs to the homeowner. And they said the b'risa over like this in front of Rav Nachman, that it was only said in regards to somebody who's buying from a merchant, a retailer, but if you buy it from somebody who grows it himself, then there would be an obligation to return it. So Rav Nachman says, What do you think that the person himself, the wholesaler, the guy who grows the wheat, do you think that he personally was the one who separated the wheat from the stalk? It's not true. He would hire other people to do it so you have to be concerned that perhaps it belongs to someone else therefore there's no reason that you should have to return it so he says to him should I take this out maybe this breast is inaccurate so he says to him no to target we could explain as follows what's the case talking about that the case is the reason that you have to, re- to return it if we're talking about it, if it was bought from a wholesaler from a personal person who grows it himself the case is specifically where people who are part of his own household they were the ones who were involved in all of the work that had to do with this thing and therefore there's no reason to assume that the money came from anywhere else, it can only have come from this person and that's why you would have to return it to him.